Father, how great it is to be among your people worshiping the living God. To bow before you and acknowledge that you are in your temple and we should keep silence before you. And then we are to lift up our voices in loud praise, enthusiastic witness because of your great love for us and your sacrifice for us and the fact that we have been saved by your mercy and grace alone. So Lord, today, as we come and gather to worship you, I pray that you would be glorified. We pray this all in the matchless name of Christ. And all God's people said, amen. The well-known Bible teacher, Warren Wiersbe, was one time reading a sermon by the more famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I have to confess, these two are my heroes. And Wiersbe, as he was reading this sermon on Psalm 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And Spurgeon would take a phrase sometimes and expound upon it in some amazing ways. The Lord was with Joseph. But as Worsby began reading that sermon, it was the very first sentence that grabbed hold of him. And he stopped reading and put the book down. The sentence was this, Scripture frequently sums up a man's life, the key to a man's life, in a single sentence. Well, Worsby had written well over 150 books, and now he had an idea for another one. And so he thought he would write a book about Bible personalities and look throughout the scripture to find a key verse that would summarize that person's life. And He wrote a book called Life Sentences. We often call them life verses. He called them Life Sentences. And it's a great book dealing with some 60 plus Bible personalities. I wonder, I wonder what verse of scripture you would use to describe and summarize your life or my life. We stand here today over 500 years after the Reformation and understand that in that great movement of history, some amazing things happened to proclaim the good grace of God. Martin Luther was the point man in many ways of the Reformation. He was a prophet bold. He describes himself as rough and boisterous and stormy and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. He said, I am born for removing stumps and stones and clearing the wild forest. And Luther was that type of individual. But working alongside of him at the University of Wittenberg, Luther was teaching in a young man by the age of 21, became a new professor there. His name was Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was just about the opposite of Luther, a quiet man, soft and gentle, sowing sowing and watering the word of God with joy everywhere he would go. He, He was, perhaps, 
the most beloved person in his entire village. And Melanchthon was a scholar. He was brilliant. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, credits Melanchthon with the reviving of the study of the Greek language, which was, in many ways, uh, the harbinger of the Reformation, the study of the Greek language in the New Testament, Greek New Testament, opened the way for the, refu- for the Reformation to take hold. Teaching together at Wittenberg, they became fast friends, mutual admirers. When Melanchthon would preach, and he was very gifted in preaching, he would often preach in Latin because there were many people in German, or many people in the area there who didn't know the common tongue German. So he would preach in Latin to sometimes 1,500 to 2,000 people as he would open up the word of God. What gave him that kind of strength? A quiet soul to stand next to such a boisterous man and together help move forward the Reformation? What gave him that kind of fortitude? Well, it appears that his favorite verse, if you were simply to look at his correspondence and his lectures, the verse that was used more than any other verse, the verse that was put into a plaque and was hanging on his study wall and still can be seen today in Wittenberg, the verse of Romans chapter eight and verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that became his life sentence. I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans as we continue our study. Romans chapter eight. And it's been said that here the apostle soars to sublime heights, maybe greater than anywhere else in the New Testament. It's like the Mount Everest of of the book of Romans or of the word of God itself. Such an amazing portion of scripture. But I want you to remember that Romans 8 acknowledges that life will be lived in difficulty, in trials, now we talked about Romans chapter seven where you've got the fighting with the, the sin within, that remaining corruption in the heart of every believer. It was not totally vacated when we came to faith in Christ. It is subdued. It is knocked off its throne, but it remains. And if we yield to that, that remaining corruption, then sin can reign in our mortal body. So Paul said, don't you yield to it. When we get into Romans chapter eight, it sounds so victorious because now the Holy Spirit is mentioned time and time again. And well should he be because there is no victory without the Spirit. And yet don't think that if you can get out of Romans seven and get into Romans eight, you don't have any more fights. Because that is not the case. Romans 8 verse 17. If we're going to share his glory, we must also share in his what? Suffering. When you get, get to verse 35. <clears throat> Romans eight thirty-five: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
Come on, I thought we were done with that stuff. No, no. In some ways, we've just begun. But in the context of all of that, there is this wonderful verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I think we fail many times to assess the power and victory that is on our side in the face of all the devils we may face in this world. This portion of scripture indeed is to be a portion of great encouragement. And yet sometimes these verses, deep and perhaps confusing, can set us back on our heels and we become more troubled instead of being more comforted. So I want us to see that you and I need to embrace a life verse something like this. God's on our side. Who can be against us? Now, in this portion of scripture, it tells us how God is on our side. Take note. First of all, God's hidden prayer is for us. That's verse 26. We've touched on it already. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Notice human limitation seen throughout all the scripture. And now it is mentioned in the sub, with the subject of prayer. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that words cannot express. Notice we talked about creation groaning for its liberty to be delivered from the bondage that it is in, subjected to bondage because of our sin. Christians are groaning because we are adopted, but not fully adopted. The body yet needs to be glorified. And now the spirit is groaning on our behalf with prayer that cannot be articulated. It, it always interests me that sometimes people pray in the spirit with groanings that can be articulated. And they say it's the spirit's prayer and no one can really tell. But when the spirit prays, he prays with groans that cannot be uttered. If we heard it, we couldn't understand it. Likewise, the spirit prays in a hidden way. Like hope works, and hope that is seen is not hope. Hope works in an unseen way, so the spirit works in an unseen way, praying for us and combating our weakness. This is so good because the Holy Spirit is called our advocate. Listen to John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. He is called the spirit of truth. Very interesting Greek word behind that word advocate. Parakletos. I remember the first time I heard someone say the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. And I thought, parakeet? What, the, you know, 
early on in your Christian life, you have all kinds of different ideas. I had the image of a pirate with a parrot on his shoulder and that's, that's a Christian going through life. The Holy Spirit is there like a bird. The word means comforter. It's, trans, it's found five times in the New Testament, can be translated comforter or helper or intercessor or the one who consoles or an advocate like a defense attorney. The Holy Spirit is all of that. And Jesus said, when I go, and I must go, because if I don't go, the Spirit won't come, but when I go, the Spirit comes and he will be your helper. And whereas I, Jesus, in bodily form, cannot be with you always, the Spirit will be, for he will dwell inside of you. So according to Romans 8, we have two intercessors, don't we? In verse 26, the Holy Spirit is praying in our heart. And in verse 34, Jesus is praying for heaven. The one who died for us and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father is interceding for us. I mean, that is amazing. I'm always encouraged when I hear that people are praying for us as pastors. Thank you so much. We need it. We're dependent upon it. Don't stop. As much as I appreciate that, and I do, it's nice to know God's praying for you too. The Spirit is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. How then can we fail? Such groans cannot be imprisoned with everyday words. The sigh is a little lighter, whereas the groan is even deeper. And notice verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit. We don't. We're often ignorant. But the one who searches the hearts knows the mind of the spirit and the one who searches the hearts is God himself or, or Jesus in particular. Revelation chapter 2, 23, Jesus said, I am the one who searches the hearts and minds. So the prayer of the Spirit, even though we don't understand, the Father and the Son understand who sent the Spirit and all that he says in words and groans, they can interpret. And it gets through. God is praying for you. That's how he is for you. And that is an amazing truth. We need not be crushed by our burdens in this life when we remember the spirit is praying for us. But that is not all. If God is for us, then we can say God's providential care is on our side. It's also for us. Look at verse 28. Have you ever read this verse before? By the way, the verse comes in the context of what? Trials, verse 17, verse 35. And we know that in all things, God works for the good, for the good of those who love him, that is, to those who have been called according to his purpose. One of the best known verses in all the Bible. One great saint said, this is a soft pillow upon which to rest your weary head. And believers do. And so we should. 
It is an interesting Greek word that literally means to work together, coming together and to work. Synergism is the English word that comes out of this Greek word, synergy. Harmony is another great concept where God brings together things that may not normally seem to go together and bringing them together produces something amazing. You know, the pharmacist can bring together some things that are very toxic by themselves, but when mixed together might be a potion that will help you get well. And here the scripture says that God takes all things and works them for our good. Now, if God took good things and worked them for our good, that wouldn't be too amazing, would it? I mean, he uses good things for our good. And we think of good things for our good. We go to the doctor and we get a wonderful report that all is well and we say to ourselves, God is good. And what we should, we should. For him to work good things for our good, that makes sense. But he works all things for our good, which means he works bad things for our good. And don't try to sanctify bad things. Don't try to redefine them. Bad things are bad things. And nor should we get to the place where we say, I'm so glad that bad things are happening to me. Something crazy about that. But God is able to work. See, the, the things don't work independently. God is able to harmonize and synergize. These events that come into our life for his glory and our good. Those are two purposes that God is always working after. His glory and our good. We may not be able to interpret it by the things that are happening to us, but indeed, that is his purpose. And the events in our life, we have no idea what would have happened had they not happened. Back in March, I think it was March 1st, 1950, there was a church in Beatrice, Nebraska that was having choir practice. 7.30, Wednesday night. That's when you're supposed to have choir practice. And that's when they had it. But the pastor couldn't get there. As he and his wife got ready to go, their young daughter soiled her dress. And so they had to go back and she had to change and they were gonna be late. Then a high school sophomore by the name of LaDonna had too much homework to do. She was having trouble with geometry and she began to work her and her geometry is obvious that she wasn't gonna get there on time either. Mrs. Schuster, who arrived at 725, had to help her mother and she would be late. Two sisters got into their car and it wouldn't work. <laughs> One guy took a nap and didn't wake up till eight. And at 7.30, because of a leaky gas situation, the church blew up. All things work together for good. Aren't you glad that God's in control? I mean, if he wasn't, we would be of all people most miserable. But he is in control. 
And even the difficult things are in his care. Remember, God is good and he must express himself in acts of goodness and he does it in doing good in our lives. It's God's providential care. The New American Standard Bible translates that God causes all things to work together for good. Ceaselessly, energetically, perfectly, God is at work. For those who love God, did you notice that? It's limited for those who love God and to those who have been called according to his purpose. Two great ways to describe Christians. Christians are the ones who love God. When your heart is touched by grace, you used to be a rebel. And maybe you even hated God. You certainly ignored him But now you love him. And loving God means you want to be in his presence. And loving God means you want to follow his word. And loving God means you want to express your joy and gratitude in praise. Loving God is one of the best ways to describe a Christian. And they are also the call. This is the way Paul described Christians in Romans chapter 1. And verse six, you are the called, called by the called by Jesus Christ believers. And so when difficult comes, difficult times come, we just trust God. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Is that just for Joseph? No. In the midst of captivity, God said through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have to you. Plans not to harm you. Plans to do you good. To give you a future and a hope. But right now, Israel was actually paying for their own rebellion. So we have to understand that God is in control. I love this observation though. If God is in control working all things for our good, I can never be lost. Right? Robert Haldane said, if all things work together for good, then I could never be lost. Where is that which God would permit which would lead me into condemnation? He's gonna say in a few verses here, who is he that condemns? Christ is justified. I cannot be condemned. Well, I can decide to lose my salvation. Not if you've been regenerate, you can't. You won't. John Stott put it this way, if all things work together for good, there is nothing within the compass of being that is not in one way or another advantageous to the child of God. They do not work by themselves, but God turns them for our good. Oh, this world is filled with a lot of difficult things and we suffer horrible, horrible injustices. But God can take the worst and bring out the best. And that's exactly what happened at the cross.
right? So hang on to that. God is for us in the hidden prayer of the spirit. God is for us in the providential care of our lives. And understand this, God is for us in his eternal purpose. So God is working all things according to his will. That was what was mentioned. The spirit is praying according to the will of God, verse 27. And God is caring for us in all things according to the purpose that he has. And now, in five amazing words, he explains this divine purpose. It's actually a certain literary construction, so writes. I had no idea what this was until I found it in study. And I thought it was pretty amazing, so I'll share it to you, not knowing, not um, letting you know that I have no idea what it was two days ago. But it's, it's where the predicate of one clause, the logical predicate of one clause, becomes the logical subject of connecting clauses. Which means when we're talking about the people of God, the ones who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, what is his purpose? Verse 29 and 30 explain the eternal purpose of God, the eternal plan of God. Five words. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's just stop there. And let's look at these words. The word foreknow is the first one mentioned and a very important word because it becomes the foundation of all that is happening later. Now, it's important to know that these five words are all connected as the Sorites indicates. These five words form an unbreakable chain. What happens to one happens to everyone. You can't get three out of the five. All five will take place. So that's why this first one is so important, foreknow. Now, it's not omniscience. Oh, I know what foreknowledge is. God, in eternity past, looks ahead with his binoculars, and he is able to see what's going to happen. Ah, this is going to happen. Oh, that's going to happen. And then, in time past, he foreordains it. There's a problem with that, isn't there? Because God never has to look ahead in time to find out what's going to happen. He knows everything at once. So this can't be mere omniscience. And this word is connected with those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose, not everyone. If this were true, God looks ahead and knows what is going to happen to everyone. But this is just for a special group of people. Actually, the word foreknow is the word to for love. It speaks of intimate knowledge. Jeremiah chapter one, before you were in the womb, I knew you, God said to Jeremiah. Does that mean he didn't know every other baby in the womb? No, there was a special relationship. Or Amos chapter three, you only, he says to Jacob, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Doesn't God know everyone? He does, but there was a special relationship. It's a relationship of love. In fact, the NIV translates Amos 3 with the word, you only have I 
chosen. It's not merely recognition, it's affection. God's setting his love on you. He loved you before eternity passed. That's what Ephesians tells us. You say, I don't understand that. Join the club. But remember, this portion of scripture is not here to debate. It's not here to cloud your mind, to confuse you. It's not here to cause you to, in despair, say, I just can't understand it. It is here to bless you. And when you embrace God's truth, he is for me. And I don't deserve it. It's purely his grace. But even before time, he loved me. Now you have to understand in the study of the purpose of God, and we're going to see this in Romans chapter 9 especially, in the study of the purpose of God, you have to understand that God is just and does nothing wrong But God is so far above us, we cannot understand his ways. And by reason, you cannot decide how God Almighty acts. If you you cause all of your beliefs to go through the filter of your reason, you're not going to believe much. What about the Trinity? Oh, I accept the Trinity, you say. Well, good. Explain that one to me. Well, I can't. Why do you believe it? Because it's in the Bible. Boom. It's not, I feel that. It's not personal emotion. Or it's not, I believe that. I don't care about your personal opinion. It's God says, and I believe. We need to be Bible Christians, which means at times we have to say, I don't understand, but I'm going to believe. And and the foreknowledge goes into the word predestination, which is another word that really scares people. But I like what Warren Worsby says about this word. He says, this is a family term, again, used five times, always in a positive fashion, connected to believers. Isn't that interesting? It's from the Greek word where we get the English word horizon, and it means to predetermine a course, to determine beforehand. Now look at the scripture, and what does it say? God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. When you became a believer, God predestined, he set himself on a course to make you like Jesus. Here's another reason why you can't be lost. When God determines to do something, he does it. No man can stay his hand. No man can thwart his purpose. No man can say, what are you doing? Stop it. And God laughs. You are my own. And I will make you like Jesus. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 26. God said let us make man in our image likeness. And man sinned. And sin entered the whole human race. And the first baby that was born was made in the likeness of his dad. 
still have the likeness of God. We pick that up in, in Genesis chapter nine, but now a defiled likeness. And you and I are all image of God, but it's a defiled image. It's a bad picture. And so when we come to faith in Christ, what he is determined is I'm going to make you just like my son. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are one. And for this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. He's the firstborn. He's the image. He's the pattern. And God is working to make you like Jesus. This is the reason for a lot of the difficulties in your life. For he takes the tough stuff and for your good and my good causes us to become more like Jesus. That's his purpose and that's his plan. Years ago from radio Bible class, I read a little pamphlet called The Bridge of Grace and it dealt with this portion of scripture. And the, one of the teachers uh, not M.R. DeHaan or his son Richard, but Paul Van Gorder. Remember that name? Some of you might. He was a great teacher on the radio Bible class. And he made this statement, I've never forgotten it. God is so pleased with his son that he wants to populate eternity with people just like him. Isn't that good? <laughs> I'm going to fill heaven with people like my son. Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Do you want to turn from your sin and be saved? Great, I'm going to make you just like him. So on earth, that's called sanctification. But once you die and you go to glory, it's called glorification. And that's where we're working toward here with these five words. For verse 30 says, and those he predestined, he also called. Now we've already seen that word. The word call is used to refer to believers. There is a general invitation that goes out to everyone, but there is a special call that brings the sinner to the Savior. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, convincing us of sin, renewing our hearts, drawing us to himself, and that's the way we pray. Now, none of this violates the free moral agency of man. And I don't know how it all works, except if God didn't come after me, I would never come after him. And it isn't my great intellect or my warm heart that finally embraced him. It's the work of grace on my soul. I'm saved by grace and grace alone. And boy, that encourages my heart because if I was saved by my own doing, I'd give up on it several times. But the one who saved me by grace says, that which I began in you, I will not stop working on until it's perfect. And God continues to work. Justified, we've already talked about that, declared righteous, glorified, that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? Where we are <coughs> completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word glorified is what they call a prophetic past. It's written as though it's already happened. It's so certain. 
Those he foreknows, he predestines. Those he predestines, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. And there's no break, break in the golden chain. This illustration is actually drawn in light of that old daily bread booklet that I think is now out of print. So you've got the Bridge of Grace drawn like an Amish covered bridge. You've got time past, you've got the river of time and time in the future. And the pillars of the Bridge of Grace must be strong. And in time past, you have foreknowledge and predestination. In time, the river of time, you have calling and justification. And in the future, we will be glorified. Isn't that encouraging? And it's not because of you. It's because of Christ. And though I face all of these difficulties, I know that he is in control. Years ago, there was a ladies' Bible study gathered together and they came across Malachi chapter three, verse three. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And they were puzzled by that verse as they reflected on the question, what does this tell us about the nature of God? He will sit as a refiner and purifier of fire. One of the ladies said, I'm going to go interview a silversmith this week. I'll come back next week to the study and share what I found. So she did. She made an appointment with a silversmith. Never told him that she was part of a Bible study. Just curious about the process. And so she went. The silversmith took his object and held it over the fire. In fact, in the very hottest part of the fire, he explained, I must do this. Only the hot flame will burn away all the impurities. And she watched him do it. Then she asked, do you have to sit there in front of the fire for the whole time? He said, oh yes. I must keep an eye on the silver while it is in the flame. If it's left too long in the flame, the silver will be destroyed. So I must sit here with my eye on it. And then she asked the question, how do you know when the silver is refined? And he smiled and answered, oh, that's easy. When, my, when I see my image in it. Let's pray. The prayer of the Spirit, the pattern of the Son, the plan of the Father. He loves you so much. He's going to make you just like Jesus. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our times of rebelling against your plan. It's okay for us to say we don't like things and to acknowledge the hurt and the pain the brokenness and the suffering. We all do it and well we should, but Lord, may we step back and remember that you are the purifier of our dross and you're trying to make us into the image and likeness of your son. Oh God, speed about your perfect purpose in us. 
for the glory of Christ we pray, amen.